Alex beautifully closed our worship and music with that song, My Redeemer Lives. Um, the arrangement that he played uh, was written by an old acquaintance of mine, Bob Bennett. I remember the summer that, uh, that Bob introduced me to that tune. He said, Wayne, I want to give... I want to give new life to this old hymn. It was one I'd never really heard performed. It was written in the 18th century by a, a British pastor named Samuel Medley. Here's what Medley wrote. Look at this, really brilliant. I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives, he lives who once was dead. He lives my ever-living head. He lives triumphant from the grave. He lives eternally to save. He lives, and while he lives, I'll sing. He lives my prophet, priest, and king. He lives and grants me daily breath. He lives and I shall conquer death. He lives my mansion to prepare. He, he lives to bring me safely there. He lives all glory to his name. He lives my Jesus still the same. Oh, the sweet joy this sentence gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Fantastic stuff. Now, what Bob sang in the second verse, look at the second verse of that. Um, the second verse that Bob wrote and that, and that uh, Alex sang is actually an amalgamation of two of Pastor Medley's stanzas. By the way, I asked Bob about that, and he said, well, it seems appropriate for a guy named Medley. <laughs> anyway, um, the last two lines there explain what it is that we're doing here today. First thing we need to notice, God's living work, do you see that? God's living work inspires the human. While he lives, I'll sing. Psalm 90 illustrates how this flows in our everyday work lives. Uh, open your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 90. Uh, Psalm 90, we're going to go to verse 16. You'll find it in your Old Testament just before Proverbs, right after Job. Psalm 90, the 90th song in the Hebrew songbook, and we're going to read verses 16 and 17. Here's how, here's how this lives out in our daily work. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. What a great song. God inspires his people to work under his aegis. Do you see that? God is in charge. Look at the first part of the, when we look at the actions of the triune God, both in creation and in redemption, we act as well. We respond. That is, we, we act responsibly with our ability to respond. But the work of our hands is ever and always under God's authority. That's why he must establish the work of our hands. And Pastor Medley summarized that so beautifully, while he lives, I'll sing. And then he followed that up with this line, he lives my prophet, priest, and king. You know, if you add judge to that, you have a really tidy summary of the Old Testament roles that are ultimately and eternally fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus is our prophet, he is the priest, he is the king, he is the judge. Because of what he does in those roles, his people are inspired to, to act responsibly under his authority. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take every, each of those four roles of Jesus that he fulfills, and we're going to learn how that changes us, how that inspires us to responsibly work under that authority. You'll see in our notes, we start with Jesus as the prophet. Open your worship guide you got when you came in, your bulletin. Look on the left side. Jesus is prophet. Now, the image always matters, right? So when they're calling Jesus a prophet, that matters. For example, if someone calls you a rabbit, they're saying that you have the characteristics of a rabbit, right? Probably big pointy teeth, I would assume, is what they're saying, right? Remember this. Jesus is called a prophet, that means he has the characteristics of those people who spoke God's words in the Old Testament. That's what it means. So what were the characteristics of the prophets? Well, the prophets 
spoke only a little bit about the future. I know, isn't that funny? Because we think a prophet, we think of somebody predicting the future. Far less than 20% of the prophetic time was spent talking about the future. The bulk of their work was to comment on the unbiblical nature of human life. They called people to repentance, that is to, to change their minds. They called for justice and mercy, for people to remember those who are around them, the needs of others. The prophets preached openly. They, they traveled, they wrote, some had followers. God did miraculous things through some. All of them were burdened. All were persecuted. But here's the most important truth about a true prophet. This is it. A true prophet was always concerned with restoration. When a prophet excoriated his audience about their lack of justice, it was because God loves people. And, and they want to see people restored. When a prophet talked about the future and what God was going to do in the future, every single time it talked about, you have sinned, you better repent. If you don't, there's judgment. And then there was a third part that's a part of every prophecy about the future. If you will respond, there will be restoration. It's always about restoration. God wants to restore, okay? Prophets were about God's regeneration. You've got to have that in mind when you're learning from Jesus. He's the ultimate prophet, and, and thus he's the ultimate bringer of restoration. Sadly, very few Christians remember the prophetic aspects of Jesus. Both his call to repentance and his promises of the future, they're neglected, and it's doubly tragic it, 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 here's the two reasons I find it most tragic that we forget Jesus as our prophet. We, we accomplish less than we should because we don't do prophetic work because we don't think about him as a prophet. We'll get to that in a moment. And the second reason it's so tragic that we forget Jesus the prophet is we miss our very best connection point for sharing Jesus Christ with Muslims. Everyone in Islam accepts Jesus as the highly regarded prophet. Now, He's much, much more than that, I understand. But that is a starting place where a Christian can have a real and genuine conversation with a Muslim who needs God's grace through Messiah Jesus. Consider how, how, how Peter commented on Jesus' prophetic office. Um, Acts chapter 3. Peter's up on top of the Temple Mount. He's in the, the portico of Solomon. Many, many people gather there every day. And, and Peter says this. He quotes from Deuteronomy 18. He quotes from Moses. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Now, Peter goes on in Acts 3 to show that Jesus is that prophet. He's the prophet. He is the one who fulfills the office of all the prophets from Moses all the way forward. Now, look at this beautiful painting by Pearson. He does a great job here. Notice how he's got two arms of Peter. That's on purpose. Those who respond to him, see how this arm is curved? Those who respond to him are brought into the covenant community, the restored community. Those who do not, those who refuse to hear him, they are cut off. See how the other arm is out like that? It's really brilliant painting. That's what he's saying. Therefore, his elect, that is those of us who have responded to Messiah Jesus, we are to prophetically restore. We follow Jesus the prophet, right? Well, well, we're supposed to do his great commission. Remember everything that he said to tell us. And that means that we're to act in the prophetic ethos. We, we care like prophets because restoration is our calling. It's in our blood. That's the message in Isaiah. Look, Isaiah 58. <clears throat> God says through Isaiah, isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not ignore your own flesh and blood? And we'll skip down to verse 12. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets where people 
live. Beautiful. This is an excellent summary of the whole prophetic work of restoration. Look, first thing Isaiah tells us, the prophets are about fighting slavery of all kinds, addictions, sex trafficking, oppressive governments, abuse in the home, codependency, bullying. These are all yokes that Jesus wants broken. And because we are his followers, Christians should be deeply involved in fighting to set people free. That is part and parcel of every job Every career, whether we serve in law enforcement or a corporation or a school or a home, our calling is to spread freedom. We work for legal freedom. We work for economic liberty. We, we want liberty from sin. Restoring freedom is what we do. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. As his people, we must be about restoration. Re- read again the, the, that beautiful stirring depiction in verse 12. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets where people live. Now, the direct application for Isaiah is the rebuilding of Israel. But but the principle here applies to all times and places. We we make money, not for us, but for the good of all. We, We care and we give to and put ourselves into cities and streets and repairing old things. I know. Our audience here in North Texas has a hard time relating to this. I understand. Nothing in your cities is old or broken down, right? Everything is new. Everything's brand new. I get that. But, folks, listen, a day is going to come, and it won't be far off, when infrastructure and buildings are going to need repair, where the way of life is going to need repair, so that the foundations that you established here of a a healthy place to live and grow, those foundations are going to need new building on them. It's going to come. And by the way, spiritual restoration is always, always going on. There is always a need for that. That's why good followers of Jesus build to last. And it's why good followers of Jesus keep good going through restoration. We follow the prophet. Maaza Mengisti is an American professor and a writer. She was born in Ethiopia. Uh, She recently has been researching a book that she's got that is going to be coming out on uh, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia before World War II. So she was traveling through her childhood country and was way up here in the Simeon Mountains in the north part when she stopped in one of the very ancient churches that is there. These are are churches that are over a thousand years old that were built in northern Ethiopia. Um, I want to read to you her description. I think it will move you as it did me. She says, Bete Georgis Uh, that uh, the Church of St. George, has a cross-shaped roof that is level with the ground. Laborers had to dig down some 50 feet while artfully carving stone. The church is a giant rock hollowed out to contain arched frescoed ceilings, sturdy columns, and worship spaces. I stood at the base of the church watching priests walk through its square wooden doors. Worshippers leaned comfortably against its stone facade, and nuns sit while quietly reading their Bibles and marveled at the artistry of those long-gone builders. Looking up, I felt engulfed by both stone and sky, and it seemed that for a moment I could sense what still remained from all those centuries past. For just a fleeting second, I glimpsed a part of life, that stubborn hopefulness. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Stubborn hopefulness. Love that. That stubborn hopefulness that had tucked itself outside of time's crashing momentum. If history reminds us of the seeming inevitability of conflicts, if it reveals the most tender vulnerabilities, then it also provides evidence of all those deliberate decisions that humans make to get up 
every day and builds sturdy testaments of hope for another generation. Not everything survives, but what does might just be strong enough to honor what could not. Close quote. Because Jesus is the prophet, we rebuild every day, every generation. Restoration is what we do. All God's people said? Now, please turn in your Bible to the New Testament. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Hebrews 4 and 5. Go to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. It's, uh, it's just before James, near the very end of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's go there. We're going to learn about a second role that Jesus fulfills. Jesus is judge. The Lord Jesus is judge. Hebrews 4 verse 13. Therefore, since we have a great high priest... Oh, sorry, I'm reading 14. 13. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Stop there. Unlike the uh, old song by Alan Parsons, Jesus really is the eye in the sky. Um, Before the great judge, God the Son, nothing is hidden. And yet, in some amazingly goofy way, humans spiritually play the game of the toddler. you, You ever play with the toddler? It's so fun. You play with a little toddler, and she is, because of, because of developmental issues uh, that, that are wonderful and part of life, she is convinced, that toddler is convinced that when she holds the blankie up in front of her face, she is invisible to you, right? right? The minute the blankie's up, she's invisible. It's what makes peekaboo so fun over and over and over and over and over. Anyway, it's great. Now, that's a fine game. That's fun for a toddler, but it's not appropriate for grown-up folks, right? And yet, and yet, that is exactly what people do. I mean, you can pretend all you want, but Jesus is the judge. And the reality is that you can play peekaboo all day, but you and I are completely exposed and visible to him. And at the bima, that is the rostrum of Jesus Christ, at his judgment seat, we will give account. This is why the story of Samuel is so important for us. After his infancy, Samuel was raised in the high priest's home, right? One night, while he was still very young, Samuel heard God calling his name. The priest Eli, who did so many things poorly, did this very well. Eli, the high priest, taught Samuel to submit to the word of God. He said, go back and say, Lord, your servant is listening. That's what he taught him to say. So when when, when Samuel goes back and he says, Lord, your, your servant is listening, God speaks judgment through this little boy. It's a fascinating scene. Amazingly, or maybe not, when Samuel grows up, he becomes the judge of Israel. In fact, he's the very last judge, and he's a great judge of Israel. But you know what? His judgeship actually began when he was a little toddler back there in the tabernacle because that's where he learned to say to the Word of God, speak, I am listening. His tenor was set when he listened to the all-knowing God, and that prepared him to be a great discerner for God's people. By the way, Samuel is, in case you don't know, he's one of the great illustrations of what Jesus would be. Think about Samuel. He had three careers, right? He was judge, he was prophet, and he was priest. He was also the kingmaker. He he anointed the first two kings of Israel. Now, Now, he's not the Messiah, who alone is the prophet, the priest, the king. But Samuel's a nice type to help us better understand Jesus. And we should be like Samuel. What we have to do is we have to listen to the judge of all so that we can become discerning for people. The world needs us to do this. Flip over one page, uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Go to Hebrews 5 and let's read verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 5, 11. 
we have a great deal to say about this, and he's continuing the discussion about the, uh, the issues of Jesus as judge and, <clears throat> and as priest. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. I don't think I can be sarcastic enough to get the excoriating tone of this across. Just, just look. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation. You need milk not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant, but solid food's for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. As we headline on the right side of your notes, his elect are to maturely discern. We must grow up in Scripture. There is an almost unbelievable lack of discernment in the world today. There is so much lack of discernment that this is the norm in our time. People hold up a blanket of their feelings, they cry like toddlers, and then they cannot even discern between very simple, basic things like male and female. For some reason, that's confusing to this world. Now, while we laugh at the world's lunacy, we should recognize something. Who is it the Bible says is supposed to teach them discernment? You are, and I am, Christians. Samuel was a baby, and yet he gave the mature answer to God's word. Your servant listens. You and I are much older, but we give the baby answer to the Bible. Not now, Lord. I'm binge watching, right? During the 20th century, Christians in the Western world did something that had not happened before. It was very troubling. During the 20th century, Christians stopped studying and memorizing the Bible as their forebears had done for 19 centuries. By the end of the 20th century, then, I think it's no surprise that we ended up with Christian leaders, famous Christian leaders, who could not, literally could not tell the difference between right and wrong. For Western society, the outcome was as disastrous as if we had put toddlers in the chairs of federal judges. Things have gotten so bad that the world around you, I'm not talking about the Christians, the whole world around you is obsessed with apocalyptic dystopia. The world around you is absolutely convinced that civilization is going to collapse soon. But don't you give in to that hopelessness. Jesus hasn't returned yet. We can still spark a massive change if we will boldly provide what everyone around us needs, loving discernment. That's why Hebrews 5 is so caustic, admonishing us to grow up in Scripture so that we can offer wisdom, so we can train in discernment. Because Jesus is the judge. I engage with him. I engage with I listen to his word. And that makes me better able to discern and guide the people who are around me. Jesus is also king. Look up here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Let's read it all together. 1 Timothy 1, 17. We'll pause at every punctuation point. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is king. Yes, we say, but it's hard for us to... Modern people, at least the ones I get to teach, are... Um, we struggle with monarchy. Most of us here are Americans. Not all, but most of us are American citizens. We, we live under a republic. A king is kind of a bad thing. Uh, the vast, there are thousands of people study with us every week across the globe, which is a real honor uh, for all of us. And very few of them live under monarchies. And the ones that do, it tends to be a constitutional monarchy where it's kind of a, a, a relegated role of just kind of you know, ceremonial stuff. So the idea of a real king is, is sort of negative. We don't get this as a positive image. Guess what? Neither did the people to whom, to whom Paul wrote this letter. The very first audience, Timothy and the people who read this letter, they didn't think of a king as a positive thing either. 
You see, what we call the Roman Empire now, we call it the Roman Empire. At the time this letter was written, it was ostensibly still a republic. It's only in hindsight that we can look back and say, ooh, look, it had already kind of morphed into an empire by that point. But nobody said that then, and I guarantee you, no, no Roman ruler of the first century would ever have called himself king. Ever. That word had serious negative connotations for their culture because kings were the bad guys from back in their old history, the Etruscan kings who had oppressed Rome in the days before the founding of the Glorious Republic, right? They would never have called themselves king. So king is a hard word for them too, but it's the right word. You see, the context shows that this is describing Jesus the Son as God and King, and the word choice is definitive. Look up here. Paul says Messiah Jesus is basilis. Basilis is an old word uh, for a king priest. It is, here's the main thing you need to know, Basilis is an overwhelmingly positive, beneficial term. The Basilis is always good for the people. By the way, that's why, that's why Homer and Herodotus and Plato, I can hardly ever find Basilis in their writings because they didn't have any experience with a really beneficial king. So they don't, they don't talk about that because that's really rare. You know what they talk about a lot? Tyrannos. Tyrannos. What, what word does that sound like in English? Tyrannos. Tyranny, yeah. Ty See, Basilus, when it's used, is always contrasted with tyrannos, with tyranny. You get the difference? Nero of Rome, he's a tyrant, tyrannos. Jesus is the only Basilus. Here's how a really smart dude uh, summarized Plato and Aristotle and the others who, who did use this term before Paul used it. And this is important, so we can understand what Paul meant. Here's what it meant up to his time. This is from Ernst Lohmeyer. There arises, he's talking about the development of Basilis, there arises the ideal figure of the benevolent king, moving godlike above men and sustaining them as a shepherd his sheep. He knows no law but the personal one of his own will, which is not subject to a social order. And his will is the norm, not merely of a particular land or state, but of all things in general. The nature and task of the king may be summed up in the fact that he is a benefactor to the whole world. Close quote. By the way, Herr Dr. Lohmeyer, uh, he wrote that in a book about the difference between following Christ as king and following any human government as absolute. That was his contrast. Christ as king versus any human government as absolute. Uh, the East German communist government under which he lived didn't like that book, so they killed him. And that, my friends, is what jealous human governments do. They hate the idea of anything over their authority which explains why it is so hard and so important for God's elect to live out their citizenship under our King Jesus. Look, Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is where, everybody? In heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. We who trust Jesus are made forever citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is amazing. So, while we are good citizens of our countries here on earth, and that's a biblical command, this is not our main focus. Our eyes are always fixed on the one who subjects everything to himself, the true basilis, Jesus. We don't get overly distraught about anything that happens in this place of transition because this is merely the turning of a page. We, we're, we're merely immigrants on our way to our legal home. We are invitees of the king. Sure, sometimes our immigration journey is hard, but this life is the journey, not the destination, and that changes how we live. Here, let, me, let me show you an earthly example. Here's a, a recent immigration ceremony. Candidates for naturalization, please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I hereby declare on oath. So help me God. Congratulations, you are America's newest citizen.
It's remarkable to think of the journey you've traveled on. You come from 26 different countries. You're inheriting a legacy purchased at a high price. Men and women through the generations have risked all, have laid down their lives. Find a way to give back for all that you've been given. Raise a great family. Build a business. Be a good neighbor. Be a teacher. Be a public servant. And welcome the 44 new American citizens. Thank you. Our Christian brother, Vice President Pence, told them, did you hear that, to give back, to be good citizens. That's natural because he's steeped in Scripture, and he commissioned them to live out their citizenship. That's a biblical idea. Peter said the same thing for us. We're citizens of heaven, right? So Peter says this, 1 Peter 2, verse 13, submit to every human authority, not because of the human authority, because of the Lord. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And he even used the word emperor on purpose. <laughs> Live out your heavenly citizenship. It was purchased for you at a very high price. Submit to every human authority. Kids, school has started in our area. That's a good time to ask, are you obeying the people who are in charge? Are you? And I don't mean when they ask you to sin. I just mean merely when they tell you to do things you don't want to do. Are you, are you submitting or are you a rebel without a clue? What are you? Adults, are you honoring everyone? Even the sloths who run the DMV. <laughs> How about those other parents in drop-off line? Do you honor them? This one really convicted me, this part of the message did. You see, last week I had a confrontation with a very dishonorable person. Uh, the problem isn't that there was a conflict. That's fine. The problem isn't that I said anything wrong. I didn't. I, I spoke truth. I didn't call him any names. But after I hung up and on reflection, talking to the Lord, I realized I did not honor him. I didn't. You know the difference, right? So do I. Citizens are expected to follow their king. Now, just like our king, we can be very firm when, when needed, but we still honor a person, knowing that our king loves that person and he wants them to hear about his grace. Jesus is king. He's judge, prophet, and he's priest. Go back to Hebrews 4. Go back. We were at verse 13 before, and, uh, <clears throat> and I jumped the fence and started this one already. Let's read 14 through 16 now, the very next section. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Our high priest has passed through the heavens. It says that is a beautiful Hebraic way to declare that Jesus possesses all the authority needed for redemption. He has the standing to intercede and provide permanent restoration for his people. How great is that? And, and, and in case you don't know, Hebrews goes on to describe what our high priest sacrificed for us. You know what he sacrificed for, for us to gain salvation? Himself. He used his standing to choose loss so that, so that we could have victory. You get that? He, he used his standing to choose loss so we could have victory. Let, 
Let me show you a small reflection of that choice. Take a look. Get a piece of him. Get a piece of him. As a state champion wrestler, Merrick Bush has very few real competitors. But the sophomore from Central Valley Academy near Utica, New York, does have at least one rival, a junior from Indian River named Logan Patterson. Merrick met him on the mat earlier this month. I practiced hard that entire week, and I wanted to beat him. Terry Kavanaugh was the referee. Been in sports a long time, and I've never seen anything like it. As expected, it was a great match. Until, with just about 30 seconds left, Logan twisted his elbow. Oh, oh my God. Up to that point, Merrick had been losing. But Logan's arm was now so badly injured, there was almost no way Merrick couldn't win. So he told his coach, I got this and went back in to do what he says he had to do. That's Merrick in the blue. Again, all he had to do was stand up and pin his hobbled opponent. But instead, Merrick did nothing. He just told Logan he was sorry about his arm and surrendered. Logan couldn't believe it. He just sat there. He didn't move. You think it was goodness out of his heart. He's a great person. I know it makes me look kind of like a weakling, but... No. That's all right. No, it doesn't. No, he's no weakling at all. I mean, state championships come and go, but that, you can't take that away from a kid. The crowd watched on their feet and through blurry eyes as Merrick lost the tournament but won the admiration of everyone in the gym. Most especially... Proud. Yeah his dad, yep. Bob. I'm very proud. It's not about winning all the time. It's about doing what's right. And he did. More importantly, Merrick thought doing the right thing would make him look like a weakling. But he did it anyway. Now that's a powerful kid. Steve Hartman, on the road, near Utica, New York. Yeah, give him a hand. That kid deserves a hand. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and he understands weakness. He understands our pains. And by surrendering himself, he turned weakness into victory. His victory is so complete that Jesus is sinless. Now, that's really important, folks, because if he weren't sinless, then, then Jesus' sacrifice wouldn't achieve God's purpose of paying for human sin. His temptations were real. But he overcame them, fully human, fully God. He conquered even death. Thus, those who confessed him as Savior, we can draw near to him in our wretched sinfulness. We can find salvation in him alone. Pray with me about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone studying with us that has never trusted Jesus as Savior. I pray you draw them to you right now. Friend, listen. You, you need to understand your standing. You are a sinner. You're weak. You are. It's a fact. So am I. But God loves you so much that Jesus, God the Son, chose to die on a Roman cross. He chose loss so that everyone who trusts him could have victory. That's it. The relationship with God is through faith in Jesus. He paid the price because you and I can't. And then he rose from the dead so that we could follow him in eternal victory, which is even better than a state championship. If you have never believed on Jesus, do so right now. 
Just confess that you need him, that you trust him, that you receive him as Savior. Thank you for the reminder of what it means that you are our priest. And pray we will be great sub-priests as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. All right, let's wrap up with our final application. Jesus is priest, so in response to the salvation he provides, what do we do? Well, his elect proclaim his salvation. That, that's what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God. Four big ideas jump out here. First one is we don't give up. Because we know our priest, because he never quits on us, we never quit either. We never stop this ministry of just living who we are and sharing the truth. My old friend Dan Bolin writes my favorite blog. It's the only one that I read every week. I want you to look at Dan's comment on not giving up. He said, several friends have started new businesses. They thrive on the adrenaline rush of establishing something new and dream of creating the next great enterprise. A few have succeeded, providing products or services to many willing buyers, but some new ideas flounder. People lose interest, they're distracted by new adventures or run out of resources. In the end, many of these enthusiastic startups turn into disappointments and failures. Starting is much easier than finishing. All of us who put our faith in Jesus become one of God's amazing startups. God is at work, remaking us into a new person who conforms more and more to the image of Jesus. Fortunately for us, God does not lose interest, become distracted, or run out of resources. He finishes what he starts. Paul told the young Christians in the new church at Philippi, Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Dan wraps up. Don't let setbacks or failures in your life or in the lives of others fool you into thinking God has gone on to bigger and better things. He will never abandon the transform transformative work he begins in the lives of his children. Close quote. Anybody here ever feel like giving up? Yeah, me too. But we don't. Because anything and everything is being used by our high priest for our ultimate good. Second response to Jesus being our priest, we don't morph Scripture to fit culture. Uh, look, look back at verse 2. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God. Folks, the cultural pressure to, <clears throat> to warp Scripture is so immense. For at least 1,900 years, it has been very popular to declare something like this. Any church that wishes to reach the culture around it must change what the church teaches. I've seen this again and again and again through history. Now, the list of things that people want to have changed vary over different times and places, but the idea is the church must mutate the Bible, it must change its message, or die. Let me react very kindly and gently to that idea. Balderdash, hogwash, cobblers, utter tripe, codswallop, bunkum, nonsense, poppycock, foolishness, nonsense. Yeah. Please, now, now don't misunderstand. The churches must continually, we must continually take the never-changing message to an ever-changing people. I mean, styles have to morph. Forms must change all the time if we are going to fulfill our commission. But the Word of God does not change. It endures forever. Of course, not everyone accepts this. Not everyone accepts Jesus as priest. 
He is a stumbling block that some never get over. Therefore, verses 3 and 4 teach us to recognize that some will reject the truth. You, no doubt, are wildly aware of this. There are people who, when they are faced with the, the reasonable logic of Scripture, will go to almost any length to keep from responding to it. And, th- and that very battle, here's what's, here's what's so sad for them in a temporal sense. That, that very battle they have always and eventually leads them into greater and greater nonsense. You, you can see it in your culture right now. Back in the 20th century, a theologian named Greg Bonson explained it really well. He said this, the unbelievers war with the word, that is to say, with scripture and Christ. That war will lead them to be at war with the word, little w, all human language and meaning. Aren't you seeing this in your culture? As words are given new meaning every day that doesn't mean anything, right? He goes on, because they reject the transcendent word of God, Jesus, who is the very truth of God, they are left in the eminent domain to reject the idea of word, meaning, and logic as well. Close quote. Isn't that brilliant? And folks, he said that before the idea of safe spaces was even invented. It's incredible. So what do we do? Jesus is the priest. As his underpriest, how do we handle this nonsensical world? We leave the results in God's hands. We never give up sharing the good news about Jesus. He is the prophet, the judge, the priest, and the king. But we leave the outcome to him. Amen? Pray with me. Father, I pray that we will be great priests because of your engagement with us, because of your spirit guiding our lives. Thank you, thank you for the offering we're about to take. It's a wonderful opportunity to, to be your priests, to, to give an offering in front of you. And I pray we do it with joy, knowing that that you can take our little gifts and you turn them into a mighty, a mighty opportunity to change a desperately needy world. And we praise you for the chance to be a part. In Jesus' name, amen.